Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. New product development today is more complex than ever before. With teams spread out across the country or the globe, decentralized product data, supply chain challenges, and more demanding customers, design engineering is just plain hard. My guest today has been building the software and the company that's working to solve these problems. In this conversation, he'll dive into the challenge at hand as well as how they're addressing it. Let me introduce him. Adam Keating is one of the co-founders and the CEO of CoLab, a Canadian company building the collaboration tools that engineering teams need to build life-changing products years sooner. Adam is a mechanical engineer and previously worked on one of the world's first Hyperloop vehicles, an electric propulsion system for large-scale aircraft, a biology-guided radiotherapy system, and several multi-billion dollar offshore energy projects. Adam's experience in industry and passion for giving engineering teams a better set of tools to do their jobs motivated him to move from being a mechanical engineer to building solutions for mechanical engineers and their teams. Adam, welcome back to the show. Joe, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's great to have you back here. I, we talked, I think it was close to three years ago. I think you were maybe, this is, I'm, I'm approaching the end of my fourth year of, of this podcast. And I think you were a year one guy. So it's, yeah, it's been been a while, <laughs> but it's, uh, and I'm sure a lot has changed in your business. I've kind of been watching you guys from a distance. I really love what you're doing. I'm especially, as I was telling you before we hit record, especially impressed with the way, way you guys communicate to the outside world about the problems you're solving and what you guys are doing. And so uh, many props on what you've been doing on that front. Kudos and kudos to you as well for four years. Like that's a long while. But you were probably one of the first casts I ever joined that early. But it's fun that both things are still firing along and growing. So kudos to you as well. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Well, Adam, I had the opportunity to read your company's strategic narrative ahead of this, and you guys have done a really great job with that. In that document, you painted a a pretty vivid picture, I think, of the current state of design reviews in new product development, which is, I think, where you guys kind of live. And I'd love for you to set the stage for this conversation by just sort of talking about that. Honestly, it's one of those things where like, you're in the engineering space, there's so much to unpack and understand, like getting a cohesive story together that actually ties to the customer's problems they care about is not easy, right? There's so many problems in this space. It's very easy to be distracted. So I guess before I get into detail, shout out to our team for a lot of hard work to really distill thousands of pieces of information into something now that I think is quite clear. Because when you go back to it, it's like the first thing you're trying to figure out is like, why does this even matter right now? Even compared to three years ago when we last met, this has changed a lot because of COVID, because of globalization and the rest. And what you really start to see is like the products we're building today are far more complex and require input from stakeholders of a far greater detail than they did 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, you could have a product that was largely siloed in terms of its functions. Mechanical teams work together, electrical teams work together and so on. A couple of people make an input, make a decision, move on. 
Today, you might be looking for input from 10, 15 different stakeholders, all different backgrounds. The tooling hasn't caught up, so it's very hard to do that. And the process for making the decision is the exact same as it was 20 years ago. And it's now choking innovation. Like everything is being forced fed through this funnel that is being stitched together by emails, stitched together by, you know, at best Microsoft Teams messages and a whole hodgepodge of manual solutions that now basically make people not want to give each other feedback, help each other make decisions or review anything. So everyone pushes that to the end. This is where you see like all these issues coming up. And it's like, as engineers, we should want to work together. We should want to ideate. We should want to be figuring out these problems early. And we're now starting to see like two camps kind of unfold. We've got kind of company A who's sick of that and truly trying to change what they're doing. And you've got company B who's just accepted it like most did. I would say like three years ago when we met, 95, 98% of the market was company B. Today, like a subjective feeling, it feels much more like one in four, one in five companies we meet are kind of like dead set on fixing what they do. And it's because things have changed, right? Semiconductor world, you have a race going on. In automotive, you have a race for EV. There's these things now that are just so big that you have no choice but to do it now. And the impact over many years of improvements is this compounding benefit. If your team is a better design of you, you get people involved earlier, you find quality mistakes earlier, that means you can resolve them. They don't cost as much. The margins are better. At the end of the day, you're delivering a better product that's faster and a better margin to the business. The opposite version is keep it the way it is. And at the end of the day, it looks like reputation damage because you're having things slip right through the cracks and get into production and upset customers. And if you look at the delta over the span of the next decade, you're going to have a new set of winners and a new set of losers. And it's going to completely change industries now that have these races like automotive and semi and consumer products and the like. And at the core of all that, how those teams make those calls are design reviews. Design reviews are the language that engineers use to make decisions. And if you think about those, they happen in serial. Engineering team looks at something. A cross-functional team looks at something. Supplier looks at something. Customer looks at something. Very hard. You do it when you have to, and that's about it. What we're proposing is, is flipping that on its head. How do we make it so simple that anybody that's involved in that process can get feedback early and often and in parallel? How could you take the engineering team with the cross-functional groups and work right together? How could you bring in the suppliers and customers early in that process for their inputs without giving away all the keys to the castle? They don't need all the information. It doesn't need to be a huge effort, but how do you bring them in? And that's what Colab really offers. We make it easy for you to pull those people in, parallelize that process, get their feedback and make decisions. And I think being able to do that then in a way where it's easy and people like to do it and people are hooked on doing it is really where we've kind of settled ourselves into building what we call a design engagement system. The first of its kind, really focused specifically on the engagement layer. We integrate with the team's 2D and 3D tools. So like a SolidWorks or a Creo or an NX Katia. We also then support the major product lifecycle management or PLM tools, wind chills and team centers and 3DX um, to ultimately make it one click push, get the data in a very user friendly way where you can open your browser, share it, review it, have the feedback logged instantaneously and then track and do the rest for you. And it's been pretty rewarding to see where that's gone over the last three years since we spoke and been a pretty cool opportunity for us. Well, congrats on what you guys have been able to achieve so far. And it's pretty cool to hear that even since you and I last talked a few years ago, that it seems like maybe some kind of mindset shift is beginning to take place. I and mean, that's a positive sign, I suppose. So 
Well, very good. Adam, we'll come back around to Colab software specifically in a little bit. I'd love to have you talk about maybe a few use cases and success stories. But I also wanted to, you know, in this conversation, kind of get into the research that you guys recently conducted. I know you you took a survey across, I think it was like 250-ish global engineering leaders. And the report that came out of it was titled Quantifying the Impact of Design Review Methods on New Product Development. Would love to hear a little bit about that research and sort of maybe some key takeaways that came out of it. Yeah, it was a pretty cool survey to see, right? We had 250 global engineering leaders, mostly inside of large-scale companies, manufacturing complex products, come together and ultimately provide insights on how they're working. And it's not really the typical data. You usually see things with CAD tools or very specific things to see how they're actually working and making decisions. It was a first of its kind kind of survey. And three of the things that I really kind of latched onto, and I'll dig into each of them, was that 43% of all design feedback is lost or never actioned in this process, never properly documented. When you think about how many changes come up, like how many of those are those things, right? My brain starts going there. How much of that could have been prevented? We then ask the surveyors, what percentage of these errors do you think you could have caught? And they're telling us 60% could have been caught with better design review, right? 60% for some of these orgs would be hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. And it's like, that's a headline. It's like, wow, that's kind of frightening. And something that was really interesting that we didn't really think about, but I think speaks to the magnitude of how ineffective we work today. We asked people, how long does it take to find a design decision? And there was options of minutes, hours, days, never. 87% said it takes hours to days to find a design decision. Think about that, right? Like if it's that hard to find it, one, it's probably not right because it was probably something someone did later. And second, it's like, what are we doing? Like, that should be something with AI and the rest today where you take the question and you get the answer back. And it's funny enough, that particular point, I was on site with a customer when our team rolled this report out and the customer was sitting in the room, didn't know about this report. And I asked her why she was interested in Colab. And she said, this morning, I literally looked through my email for three hours to justify a design decision that we made that came back with a change. I never did find the result. And I spent the entire morning and now I'm here eating lunch with you. And I literally had this report in my email and I looked at it and I was like, yep, sounds about right. 87% of people would agree with that exact data point. And when you combine that with the first and second point, it's like 43% of this gets lost. And then 60% of it could have actually been avoided. It's like, what are, you know, what are we really doing as engineering teams? And how is that impacting our speed? How is that impacting what we could be innovating on as a team? And when you start to get those kind of numbers, we're not talking five, 10%. We're talking like half of what we do or three quarters of what we do being that ineffective. That's where I started to think like, this isn't about efficiency wins. This is about a fundamental rewrite of how people work together, which is why we think design engagement systems are going to be the way forward. You've invested a lot of money inside of building out your PLM or infrastructure. How do you leverage that now in a much more effective way? To transform people think. And that's like, I think my personal mission now is how do we take that 43% number of feedback and drive that down? How do we drive down this late stage years? How do we make people find things in seconds? Like it should be truly seconds, not minutes, not hours, certainly not days. But it was a really, really interesting report. There's lots of other insights that came out of some things that are pretty surprising. I'm happy to dig in any of that. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to you know, go to next is was this did the report serve as you know validation of what you believed to be true or were there was there anything that made you say wow I did I didn't even realize this this is what was going on. There's a couple that, and they're kind of related that 
at first I literally thought the report was wrong. Like the question must've been wrong or something had to be wrong because the number was so high. But we asked people, what tools do you use during product development? And one of the answers at the end said, like, I don't use my PLM for product development. And all these companies chose, we have a PLM. These weren't companies without one. These were companies self-selectively said, I don't use the PLM in their mind during product development. They think about it for manufacturing, releasing something. But when they think about how they build their product, 71% of people responded. They don't feel they use their PLM, although they might be using it for data management. They don't feel they use it for product development. That was such a stark number that it was like, whoa, people are spending millions and millions of dollars on this. Leaders are then saying they don't believe their teams use it for product development. It's like, what are we doing? It's called a product lifecycle management tool, right? Like the whole point is that, and our hypothesis is that they're hard, they're complicated to use for good reason, right? There's a lot of infrastructure and change and process, but to update one of those and build a modern one now is, is a very big undertaking, which is where you got to think about how do we make that more accessible and easy? And we asked people then on the backside of that question, do they feel they need other tools? And just under 90% responded that they needed new tools for communication in design. And that was like a bit of an interesting data point because four or five years ago, we surveyed a bunch of customers around how they communicated design decisions and it came back like 92% with spreadsheets and PowerPoints and emails, all the things you expect. But to now see like the number of people saying they want to change that or think they should be changing that in the 90 percentile range, years ago, people thought that was okay. And it goes back to the earlier part of this conversation about company A and company B. A lot more people sliding into the company A category of it's time to do something different. It goes back to what you said, right? The world changed. COVID's upended it, much more global teams, a lot more pressure in the markets. And the products have gotten harder with many more people. And to do that well has gotten a lot harder. Good for you guys for going out and actually doing this report, listening to what your audience has to say. I imagine it's serving you in all kinds of ways from the messaging you're going to market with to what you're actually doing to let your software evolve. Just out of curiosity, how are you putting this report to use? Well, I mean, first thing, it was like an eye-opener for us on like where we should be investing in the product. Now, like what do people actually care about? What are the problems they're really talking about? Like the finding information piece was such an eye-opener for us. The fact that they said it took hours, days to do that. It's like, I knew that was true myself as an engineer, but I never realized that was really widespread, I guess. Like, I kind of thought that was like maybe an isolated case, but for that to be true across that many people... And that stark is like, we need to figure out ways to go get more information accessible for these people so they don't have to be looking for it. Because we built a good job doing that for looking at the history of a drawing or the history of a model or design reviews or whatever. But what else might we help them figure out in seconds? So to me now, it's, it's a combination of tuning what problems we go after solving and then taking that information to really understand how do we build the best products on the planet for helping people work together, review critical engineering data and make decisions. And it's very clear now that a lot of those hypotheses we had years ago, and they were just feelings, are now true. And there's probably a next level of data we need to get sometime this year, which is going a level deeper on like the specifics of types of communication, parts of the PD process. And it's something that uh, I certainly need to talk to our team about because it's like such an eye-opener. I see this data all the time in little pieces, but probably one of the first reports I've read and been like, well, there's some big trends in here that I think over the next five years are going to see change dramatically. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. 
So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic. And one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. I think this is just such a great, I mean, pausing for a second here to just talk about marketing for a second too, which is my world. Like this is such a smart and important thing to do is to go to your customers, to go to your prospects, the people that you actually need to reach and influence and hear from their mouths, what actually matters to them, what problems they're experiencing, what would make their job easier, help them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. Because I think so many companies operate under the assumptions, they you know the things they believe their audience actually needs. And you may be 80% right, but that 20% that are, are the surprises and the things you hear time and time again are really a lot of times where the opportunity lies. And you got to understand your customers if you want your product market fit to be there and also to make sure you're talking to your market the right way. I'll tell you an interesting one. I saw this tweet yesterday from a, a founder friend of mine. And the early advice you get a lot of times is like, listen to your customer and just solve the problems. But focus on core problems. And he made this tweet because they're in the AI world. His point was almost everything that has struck customers in a way where they were like jaw dropped has not been things they told us were the core problem, but these like wishes they had things where they were like, it would be incredible if the world looked like this, where most companies don't get to. So it's this interesting thing there where AI is there where you kind of got to read between the lines a little bit too, because it's going to start leapfrogging so hard that you definitely need to listen. I think we've gotten really good at that. But I give you two concrete examples. A lot of customers said they want to be able to like split screen data and collab, or they want to compare data. That's what they kept saying to us. They said, I want to compare data. I want to see before and after. And then they also like said to us, they want to work more effectively together. We launched this feature where you could split screen any file, two different versions, drawing model, whatever, and then paired it with follow mode where I could click on your avatar and you can basically like walk through my app, what I see on your screen with instantaneous connection, same way you would in like a Google Docs or whatever it be, but with 3D models and things that are complicated. And the reaction we've gotten from customers who've been using it for years has been like truly that like jaw drop moment. It's what they'll tell people about too. And it's, it like almost reinforces the core problems. It's like in 2024 with AI coming out as like more of a full-fledged part of everyone's strategy, we need to think as like marketers, companies, listen to the problems, but like anticipate almost what else is beyond the surface level problem and how might you make something that's magical because AI is going to let a lot of things be magical and just doing the core almost won't be enough in 2025, which is like kind of a hard thing to think about because it hasn't been true for a long time. But think about Figma. Like I think Figma is the most beautiful example. Everybody uses that tool in design. 
uh, and graphic design, UI, UX design, if they didn't have multiplayer five years ago, I bet you their usage would be a fraction of what it is because most of why we joined was like, wow, this experience is wild. Like the tools might've been a little better, but we were hooked on like the feeling of working together. And that's the same thing we believe with design engagement systems. If people get hooked on how they work. So I don't know, it'd be cool to think about that too. When you're thinking about listening to customers, like what would transform the way they are beyond just solving the problem? Being practical, of course, but it's something different that I don't think we thought about that hard until probably 2023 when it became apparent that the world was changing. I saw a tweet yesterday and I was like, man, it's so spot on. And most people won't actually say it or believe it, but I don't know. It's what we see too. Uh, I think that's such a great build there. You know, it's not just the problems we're experiencing today, but because you know, I think probably a lot of people, I mean, like you're the product expert, right? In CoLab, like you and your team are the product experts. Probably a lot of your audience doesn't know what's even possible. And so unless you're asking them for what they wished was possible, how would they ever even know what to tell you? So I think those prompts are really important. My, my co-founder's got a really great mental model now that I think is really helpful for anybody, whether it's building software product or something else, any other product, hardware product. He basically says like, we listen to our customers and hear what they have to say about problems. Our goal then is not to solve those problems with what they tell us to do, but to basically synthesize what they said, boil it back to like the root, and then ultimately solve it in the way we think is best for the broader customer base. And that's served us really well because in software development, hardware, whatever, think about vehicles, right? How many configurations are there of all the traditional vehicles today? Like there's catalogs of hundreds of thousands of builds. How many people buy most of those builds? Like nobody. Think about how much complexity that is for them to manufacture and maintain and service. It's insane. It's crippling companies right now. It's a key part of why everyone's shifting towards these platform-based EVs that are much simpler. Our software is the same. If we did what everyone said verbatim, we'd have 14 different ways to leave feedback that are all basically the same, but not. And then you get a complicated tool. So I like that mental model, like listen carefully, ask questions, distill it back to like the root of it all, and then properly go figure out how to solve it. And it's one of the things that it sounds easy, but it took us years to get like amazing at doing that. And I think it's why our product is like leapfrogged so much in the last 12 months is that we've done that well and not running around in circles, um, chasing feedback. That's great insight. Adam, any customer success stories or applications that you'd like to talk through to just sort of illustrate the transformation that CoLab has set out to make possible? Yeah, I can probably give you two. I start, start with the big one that's been something that I think, you know, I've been pretty proud of and a fun part of the journey. You know, working with a company like Ford, massive, massive company building the millions of vehicles everywhere, very complex, came to us a couple of years ago and said, we want to figure out how to be more effective working with our customers. So think about the transit van that gets converted into an ambulance or a food truck or utility truck. All those white vans that turn into something else, they have another customer on the other end of that taking their design and converting that into something else. That's then hundreds of companies transmitting massive amounts of data, trying to make million dollar, multi-million dollar design decisions in a very complex supply chain. And for us to be able to go in there now over the last year or two, roll us out to 200 of their partners and ultimately have them saving between 30 and 40% of conversion program timeline in just the first like 18 months has been incredible, right? These people now are able to get involved in the cycle months, six months, even in some cases sooner, which means that in the end, some people are buying vehicles sooner, selling vehicles sooner, like tangible business impact. And the cool part is it's not just been like structural change. We have people who we've never even met sending us messages telling us 
this is the easiest and fastest way they've ever worked with any OEM on the other side of that. And I think getting kind of both sides of that where the business impact is clear, but the customer and the end user, even their collaborators are that excited as such a big company has been so cool. And Ford's been incredible to work with. Great team. Like there's so many other things I can't uh, get into details on we're working on. It's like, man, it's so exciting to see that happening in automotive. And then you look at someone like Mainspring Energy, who has laddered up super quickly, growing really fast. When they met this engineering team, the mechanical team was only 30 or 40 people. I don't know what they are now, but it's at least tripled, quadrupled that in the last couple of years. This guy came to me almost with our strategic narrative, Joe. He literally said, like, I don't want to just do what people always do. I want to do this better. And I want to start by getting the design reprocess right. So like, he probably sounded like a little out to lunch when he first said that to everyone else, because this was kind of new two, three years ago. He believed so hard in that, that they did one program with us. Typically, it would take about 12 months. We did it in under six. We cut out more than half of the entire product cost, released 300 drawings, and zero had a defect. And all of it was done in parallel with co-design, where they had the supplier, manufacturer, design partner, all engaged super early. And I think that's like maybe one of the most rewarding ones, because that's like a grounds up you can't have quality, cost, and speed by just making little changes. That's a full-on transformation of like how they behaved. And the nice part was we taught a handful of people how to do it. And then the best practice is just spread like wildfire. It's just organic user adoption. So when you see that at like a company the size of Ford with their suppliers, partners, and the rest, and we don't even know them, and then a company that's like carving the new path, they have every option to build it however they want. It's kind of cool to get the two ends of the spectrum. And now just with every customer you bring on, like instantaneously, first month, you're seeing like some tangible result. And that to me is like why we started the company was to go back and help people build and deliver life-changing products years sooner. We said that kind of like jokingly at first, like years, but truthfully now in some cases, some of our customers are on the order of like years sooner already. And give this another couple of years when we start full programs from scratch, like you're going to see one, two, three years shaved off some of these. And that can be life and death, depending on what it is, right? We're getting into medical devices, energy systems, like, I don't know. It's been pretty rewarding and an incredible part of being a founder and doing this. Well, congrats. That's really cool to hear. And I mean, you've described some believers there and companies that are have the right mindset and they're reaping the rewards of actually acting on it. It's something I see plenty as leader of a company that serves the manufacturing sector is, you know, you see a lot of companies that are very slow to adopt new technology. Companies that have been operating the same way and a lot of different elements of their operations for many years, sometimes generations. You kind of described it earlier with the software, so much of the software has been stagnant for so many years. What do you have to say about what's at risk in the years ahead who, for those who kind of just keep doing things the way they're doing things? My opinion now is like, you know, six years ago when we started, people would tell us Colab was was nice or cool or cute. It was like a nice to have is how it was viewed. It was the number one opposition we got for fundraising. It was like, is this a real, is this a real thing? And I think at this point, how you work is as important as the product you build. No different than think about Tesla, SpaceX. If you ask Elon Musk, like, what is the value of Tesla? Their manufacturing plants and how they actually build the car is as important as the car itself. And I think this is how you design stuff is as important as the actual final design itself because people aren't going to be as loyal to brands anymore. People are going to bounce around between industries. The competition for talent is super high. The actual available talent for depending on what you're working on is tricky. And traditional like big companies are losing out to the new 
cool tech companies. And it's going to become an actual problem. And back to that company A, company B piece, the inertia companies had in the company B camp that kept them alive is going to quickly degrade over the next 10 years because the next generation coming in, they grew up on TikTok. They're not growing up with patience for a thousand clicks inside of SAP. You look at what they're doing, they're more interested in software than they are hardware. So example, my class 12 years ago when we started engineering, number one discipline, mechanical, last one software. I went back a few years ago and looked at the data. Number one was software. Number six was mechanical, full switch in, in the span of six years. And if you look at that and you think about retain, retaining talent competing, you know, they don't even have people there. They can't figure out how to make it exciting to work for the company anymore. So there's all the other things I can talk about. You're going to slip behind. You're going to lose. Here your quality problems. Like that's also true. But I think in this case, like 10 years from now, if you can't figure out how to work, it's going to be existential because there won't be people to do the work. People aren't going to do it. They're going to be moved on leveraging AI and like literally running laps around companies. And that to me is like a scary spot to be if you're not seriously thinking about now, how do we change how we work and make decisions and treating that as like a first class moat or IP or value that your company has. And right now, so many don't. So I think we're seeing that change. And I hope, I hope when we get on the next episode in three years time, I can tell you that most companies are taking that seriously. Yeah, I hope so too. And given the way things are moving, it seems more and more likely. So that's a good thing. going in the right direction, hopefully. But Adam, anything else you'd like to add to the conversation? Any call to action you have for manufacturing leaders listening right now? No, I think the big thing now is like, what's interesting for me is thinking about, even to your point on the last question, how do you make this accessible? Think about small wins where you can invoke behavioral change. I think that's fundamentally what we've done best with the product is that we're not asking people to boil the ocean with some big model-based definition or digital threat initiative, the buzzwords of the day. We're thinking about something simple that opens up the door for doing those bigger initiatives in a way where the end user doesn't really care about what the initiative is, they're just doing their work in a better way. So like take an example, MBD, don't go to everyone trying to sell MBD, go to people, give them an easier way to review a drawing and an easier way to review a model, an easier way to review something with annotations on it and PMI. All of a sudden you're getting much closer to MBD and people aren't being forced this big corporate pitch. They're solving a problem one by one. And I think to me, like I get people over the company B to company A hump, there's gonna be a lot of skeptics. And if you can help people see little wins. We've had people tell us early on, they hate us. They hate cola. This is stupid. I don't want to do this. And the second they start trying it and they see it solve something without a lot of effort, they keep doing that. And then the inertia behind that is big. And then you can start taking bigger swings. So whether you're a software company trying to build, like think about that building block. If you are a hardware company trying to solve these problems, think about picking a specific problem, a specific type of design review, a particular program, pick something that's tangible, and just go fix it and create that cultural change because that's what will breed the next wave of fixing the problem. Big swings at the top that take five years to roll out. I think those are dead in terms of like actual effectiveness. People will still do them, but we'll see the jury will be out. I think we'll race most companies to rolling out collab across the whole company in the next five years by going this route. Then they will by mandating from the top down over a five-year window. Well, great way to wrap it up. Really good advice. Love the conversation today, Adam. Can you tell our audience how they can learn more about Colab and get in touch if they're interested in having a conversation? Yeah, if you want to connect directly, connect with me on LinkedIn, Adam Keating. For Colab, check out www.colabsoftware.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn for Colab. I share lots about the product and the industry. There's also lots of people on our team that are pretty cool to follow too. But I appreciate you taking the time, Joe, and thanks for having us again. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Well, thank you for making time, Adam. And we'll have to do that part three, three years from now. See what's changed, huh? Yeah, let's put it, up, put it on the calendar now. We'll use it as a I like it. function for uh, how's the industry doing. <laughs> there you go. Love it. Awesome. awesome. Well, Adam, thanks again. Thank you. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>